This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. This is Tara Moss speaking to Samuel Elliott on the Right Way Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for the introduction there, Tara Moss. And hello to everyone in digital land listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast program with me, your host, Samuel Elliott. person whom you just heard introducing this episode of the show is none other than today's guest, very special guest, best-selling author, Tara Moss, speaking to me all the way from Canada. So huge, huge uh, thanks to Tara for talking to me all the way from Canada. But yeah, we discussed her second in the Billy Walker series or the follow-up to her best-selling historical crime fiction novel, The War Widow. We discussed The Ghosts of Paris, which is set with after, after the events of The War Widow, covered in The War Widow, and it's very much in keeping with uh, Billy's sort of quest to find out what has happened to her husband, Jack, Jack Rake, uh, as well as a new case comes into her detective agency or private inquiry agency, I should say, as, a, as the, the lingo, which or the, the moniker in which it's being given within uh, 1947 Sydney. So yes, Billy gets a new case that sees her jet setting around some places that are still very much uh, reeling from the aftermath of World War II uh, and finds herself embroiled in this sort of ongoing uh, situation along with carrying over sort of uh, other events from from the War Widow as well as her new case uh, with several now fan favourites sort of uh, along for the ride in, in one respect or another as there's Sam Baker and Charlotte Davis along with, uh, yes, a colourful cast of characters as you would expect from Tara with her novels. Uh, so this marks her 14th novel. Yeah, 14th novel uh, that Tara has written. Uh, her writing has also appeared in Miss Magazine, Crime Reads and Medium Quarterly. But Tara has had uh, many sort of different uh, pursuits uh, such as being an advocate, as well as a documentary host. Um, so many different sort of achievements to her name, but yeah, it was just an absolute pleasure to talk to Tara all the way from Canada there. Uh, so yeah, I'd really like you all to give a big digital round of applause to Tara Moss discussing with me her latest novel, the second in the Billy Walker series, The Ghosts of Paris. Tara, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program this morning, both mornings for us. How are you doing? I'm really well. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so good. So excited to speak to you, particularly from far away. So I feel like that's very, very cool in itself. Isn't technology wonderful? So I wonderful. Mean, I, I know I've chosen to write about a period when this would be impossible. We'd have to write letters by snail mail and have them, you know, intersect somewhere like months and months apart. But instead, we've got technology on our side. We're almost in the same room. Let's hope it just continues to work. It doesn't do that weird clipping thing where we can't hear each other for several seconds. <laughs> I always like to ask or start off with a question. Um, where did the idea for The Ghosts of Paris originate from? Was it something that you already had brewing in your head when you written, when you inked the final page of The War Widow? Or was it something that kind of came to you after organically? How did that sort of come about? To me, I feel like The War Widow and The Ghosts of Paris are really quite interwoven stories. Mm. and. Um, anyone who wrote or read the the War Widow would probably see that there's, you know, there's a giant kind of question in Billy Walker's life. My main character, P.I. Billy Walker, she's a um, private investigator in the 1940s. And during the war, when 
She was working as a war reporter. She fell in love. She got married. She had this makeshift wartime wedding, that, which was really common at the time. Of course, emotions running high, um, you know, danger at every turn, people's lives absolutely, you know, thrown into chaos. And her um, husband went missing. So what we see in the first book is that really she doesn't know what her personal status actually is. And mm. she's living in a world where people care a lot about that. Amazingly, after a war that tore lives apart, people are very interested in whether women are married or unmarried or what their status is. It's really still quite a big deal, which is one of the themes of the series, really. But the ghost of Paris was like the natural next step. She ends up having a very wealthy client come into her office, uh, very happy to see there's a woman whose checks won't bounce like rubber. And um, that's a, a good sign for Billy Walker's agency. But it also means this woman needs her to go to Europe. And that puts Billy into a situation where, you know, she she has this giant mystery. She has this thing hanging over her and she can't turn away from it anymore. It's right in her face. And she needs to figure out what happened in her own life as well as what happened for this client. What sort of, in terms of, I mean, obviously, yeah, so you had the overarching story idea with completing the War Widow, but what challenges do you think that you face with uh, the continuation of a series there, Tara? Because obviously then you started to feel, or I feel, you start to get fan favourites like Charlotte Davis or Sam Baker yeah. in terms of people that fans starting to love these people. So then is there this sort yeah. of uh, obligation you feel to include them or try to corral them into the, the screen time or the equivalent of screen time with page time for the novel? Or how does that sort of work for you? Well, that's going to get trickier as time goes on for mm. sure. But I'm a bit of a series writer. Uh, mm. My first series was a crime series with Mac Vanderwall, um, kind of a bit of a 90s serial killer vibe now. It feels almost like vintage now, actually, because Fetish, Fetish came out in the 90s and was the first of that six-part series. Um, it, it's just naturally the way I write. So, um, you know, that was my debut character, Mac Vanderwall, and I was really searching for what my next big series character was going to be. And my love of the 1940s and film noir and hard-boiled and those like tough dames of the silver screen just kind of meant that Billy Walker arrived fully formed as a character for me. So she's a character I never need to second guess. She, I'm like right there with her, with her fighting red lipstick and her trench coat, ready to hit the streets, you know. Um, and really, I just have to decide like you said, what that constellation of wonderful characters are up to in each of the stories and what the primary cases will be that walk into her office. But in terms of Billy, like, yeah, she arrived fully formed. She's got this character arc. She's got all these things I want her to do. I never have to question that. But um, those supporting roles are so key in her universe, like Ella and Alma, like Shyla, like Sam. And they'll each have their moments to shine. But of course, every book can't give even, you know, equal distribution of like airtime, if you will. Um, you just have to read the whole series, I guess, to see each character come into their own and have their particular moment. Yeah, very well said. You mentioned about being inspired or loving sort of noir and hardball detective stories. I want to know how much, because I get the impression that the, the era itself also kind of ignites your imagination as well, sort of blending in these real world characters 
Um, I particularly love the mention of Rosaline Norton. I'm really excited to, to have that, the, the Witch of King's Cross. Um, Nettie Brown, which is someone I didn't uh, actually know Tara in terms of the first uh, female sort of uh, private investigator. Was that a real person or was that, so I thought that would sound like a real person, but I wanted to ask you about that. Well, Nettie Brown is a fictional character from the first book, but you might be thinking of Lillian Armfield. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's right. Lillian Armfield was a real pioneering detective in New mm. South Wales. Um, as far as I'm aware, she's the first woman who was allowed to carry a pistol as an officer in New South Wales, Amazing. which is quite extraordinary because, I mean, she was on the streets at the same time as, like, Tilly Devine and yeah. like, the Razor Gang War era. Um, it was rough out there and the women officers were not given uniforms at that time. They had to sign off that any injuries they sustained in the line of duty would give them no compensation. They didn't get a pension. They didn't get a sidearm. And you'd think with these limitations that they would be like, forget about it. But women yeah. were knocking on the door. They really wanted to, to get into policing. And it was that constant pressure kind of to, to, you know, women wanted to get into the force and kept being turned away. So Lillian Armfield's an example of someone who made it in and who was really quite pioneering and sort of paved the way. So she gets a mention in The War Widow. She gets like a couple of lines. I'm, I'm always really careful when I'm using historical characters to, you know, have that responsibility of their legacy or memory kind of dealt with in a sensitive and, and appropriate manner. So I use kind of my, my name dropping of her and her moments in The War Widow to hopefully make people look her up and go like, oh, this is a real person. Oh, wow, look at all the amazing stuff she did. And I guess through the whole series, I'm hoping to do that to really shine a light on some of the really interesting characters of the time, real life characters, um, whether it's Martha Gellhorn, the war reporter, or Lee Miller, or Nancy Wake, um, you know, or, or someone like Lillian Armfield. And also Billy getting to interview politician Winston Churchill kind of <laughs> as well. I really, really like that too, in terms of the weaving. And you mentioned about the, the respectful way in which, in which you do that. And I guess that there's, that also presents sort of a pitfall of a challenge as well, because obviously you want to, to weave in these, these real life people to, to add weight to the story, because it's not so much, I think, with historical fiction, it's not just about creating the setting, it's also having it kind of woven into this real world that gives it that sort of just right level of authenticity. What do you think? I think so. I think it's a really careful balance that you need to have. Hmm. Um, I have even gone to the lengths of like, like each of the locations is real. For example, mm. you could, I could take you on the Billy Walker walking tour of Sydney or Paris or London, right? These locations really exist today. Even if, you know, there's um, they're boarded up because they're not safe anymore. They, they exist. So mm. I can see the tiles on the ground. I can, I can touch the walls. I can feel the presence of that history. The only exception though, is the dancers, which features quite heavily in the war widow and is touched on in the ghosts of Paris as well. And the reason I made up that dance club was partially as a nod to Raymond Chandler and his, you know, the dancers in LA, it features in a lot of his um, noir. Not just that, but the fact that some nefarious types appear to run that club. And I did not want to 
cast aspersions about people's like grandparents or great great grandparents if i was talking about say the trocadero mm -hmm. you know everyone would go dra dancing at, at the troc and that was a real place and so i couldn't have you know shady characters running the trocadero because then i would be making making up stories about people who really existed who would have real family alive today so it's that careful balance I think always where you're dealing with real memories and real legacies, but you're also trying to have some entertainment and have a good time. And of course those shady types existed at some clubs. It's just that sometimes I have to make, you know, make up those things, even if everything else is set in like, you know, you can literally walk the tiles authenticity. Occasionally mm. I'm going to have to throw in someone who's, um, mafioso and actually give a false name because I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> Look, that's totally fine. But in terms of the building of the world, I think that you've definitely nailed it in terms of you need to keep a setting in order for it to be so immersively realized. There needs to be the location. So obviously there's plenty where you could do that. Like you said, the Sydney walking tour. Yes. I think that not only just that, but to actually have sort of the pervasive sort of sensibilities or attitudes at the time is also really, really important as well. And I think you've definitely done that, Tara, in terms of the attitudes for, I particularly liked when Billy went to Paris, this very enlightened place where people that were looking to kind of um, have same sex sort of relations could kind of find places to do that quite easily. And yet she still couldn't wear pants in the Ritz kind of situation. Yeah, uh, the, the subversive trousers. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. Like as, as a writer, when I'm looking at history and I go, okay, so the Nazi high brass took over the Ritz Paris during the war, basically. It was like a kind of truce, if you will. We won't bomb this place, but we're going to take it over. So they were there, but then Billy, a couple of years later, is walking and she's wearing silk trousers. And it's like, no, 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 we can't have ladies wearing trousers. And like you said, in a city where thankfully they didn't have laws against same-sex partnerships, so the state wouldn't intervene in what was happening in your bedroom like mm. they did in Australia at the time. Mm. In fact, until fairly recently, um, you know, those anti-homosexuality laws were you know a, a terrible thing and impacted so many lives in detrimental ways but then you've got okay this is paris it's different in paris and so you're really at the mercy of legislators in different places and some of the laws are really surprising so yeah trousers illegal in paris until i think it was 2013. You okay i didn't i did yeah. not know that yeah, you needed to carry a police permit if you were a woman who had trousers. That was, I mean, that was on the books. Did they, did they actually like prosecute someone in 2012? I don't think so. But it actually did stop even an MP from entering like legislator, legis, uh, legislature in the 70s because she was wearing cord trousers in Paris. Like, that's how ridiculous some of these laws are. So yeah, it's fun as a historical fiction author, you get to kind of dig this stuff up and weave it into the plot. And um, when you're reading a Tara Moss novel, you know, something like that, it's not made up. That's actually something you can Google and go, what? That's real, you're kidding me. Yeah, that's that's completely uh, unbelievable as well. Like, that just blows my mind. But then, so there's the, there's the respective sort of nations attitudes as well. And then I thought that there was also kind of, again, more of a pervasive sort of worldwide, unfortunate uh, sort of sensibility or attitude, uh, which was, I think, sort of embodied within Basil and some of what Basil yes. said as well in terms of um, 
uh, is that appropriate for a woman? Terribly unladylike. I particularly liked, and I don't think it was in the same scene, but at one point Billy mentions how her job isn't to judge. Yet I feel that by virtue of her being a woman doing what she's doing, she's automatically judged and judged quite harshly, regardless of what country she goes to of the era. Tell me a little bit about that, Tar. So I feel that with the historical fiction series, you have this opportunity to take a, a kind of look at where we've been, where we've come from, and maybe how far we've come, um, and kind of how far we still have to go. So mm. there are certainly women today who are in male-dominated professions who get weird responses all the time and maybe even a lot of pushback or a sense of like you don't belong here you're not mm. part of the club and billy walker as a 1940s female private investigator is certainly one of those people who does not fit in and we know one of the jokes is that she still gets mail that's like addressed to be what mr b walker because even though she's like obviously feminine i mean she practically looks like ava gardner in a in a trench coat right you know, even that isn't enough for people to, to not assume that a principal at a private investigation agency is a, a grizzled gumshoe. So I think it's a, it's a great opportunity to kind of look at how, how we consider things and where we've come from. And mm. even though she's in this male-dominated profession, she's great at what she does. Like many women during World War II, she was encouraged to go out and, you know, get out into the working world, like help the war effort. She did that as a war reporter. And then like so many women, the moment the war was over, so to speak, you know, they declared victory. And then it was like, thanks, ladies, back in the kitchen now. Mm -hmm. Go home, go home. So there's pressure for her to leave her job. There's pressure for her to have all jobs be for the returning soldiers, which was a real thing at the time. She's downsized her agency to make as much room as possible for returned soldiers. She's, in fact, employed a returned soldier in the disabled war vet Samuel Baker, who's a wonderful um, character that she interacts with. They make a great team. Um, but all those pressures are there, like a, a woman who's not obviously paired with a man. So... You know, she's she's not got a man overseeing, you know, that authority overseeing what she's doing. She's kind of a threat in some ways. And we feel that with these characters like Basil, like you mentioned, and and he represents really what would have been quite a majority view at the time, that it was very unladylike for her to be in her profession. Unladylike. And there was also another sort of um, attitude mentioned as well, which I found believable, but just shocking as well, was um, single women were sort of perceived as a potential threat to married men potentially to make them stray from from their own sort of marital vows there i just i didn't know anything about that well widows were treated extremely poorly at the time which is appalling and in in hindsight i mean we look back and think how could this have been the prevailing social attitude but Mm. the idea was um now you no longer have you're no longer attached to a man now you're a threat so you needed to try to remarry as quickly as possible so you weren't a threat socially and also the government you know they weren't going to be looking after people who lost their you know you might have children you might have had your husband killed on the front lines for his country and they really just wanted you to remarry and get on with things and Mm -hmm. not and not sort of you know i guess all that emotion that would be tied to that person i mean it's you're talking about real human beings here um, but the feeling was very much like, oh, you know, you're a problem. Women who are single were a problem. And that's still very much um, 
you know, a, a lingering attitude in some, in some areas, um, even today, which is, yeah, extraordinary. I, I found that particularly hard to take, just thinking of people's loss. And, and then to be, yeah. You know, you've, you've had this huge loss and now socially people are, you know, you're not being invited to things. You're not, people aren't being very friendly to you because you've become a threat because you're a single woman. Extraordinary. It's interesting that you mentioned as well as how far we've come but we've still got a long way to go, I guess, with oh. in that regard. But well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm here right now in 2022, and the you know the Supreme Court in the U.S. is mm. toying with the idea of repealing you know the the laws that allow same-sex marriage. So you still have these issues of like you know sexuality and orientation being like an issue with the state instead of personal matters. Like I, oh. So yeah, 1947 slash 2022, there's, there's a lot of crossover. There's a lot of stuff there. Shouldn't be, still is. But um, Tara, what I wanted to ask you as well is before Billy goes to you, we mentioned about her, her sort of um, mixed feelings about that. What is it about physical places, particularly if they're imbued with some traumatic memories that can have such profound impact upon us, even if we're maybe in a better stage of our lives or have have moved halfway around the world. What is it about these places and the memories that are imbued there that kind of all live there that kind of can have such an effect on us in our current state? I believe, you know, the title, The Ghosts of Paris, refer really to the ghosts of the past for her. And I think that there are like memories of trauma and lives that live in places. That, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that there is an essence or energy that, that um, remains. So I don't actually think you can go into Auschwitz and like, even if you didn't know where it was, you couldn't just sort of set up a cafe and and feel like, oh, everything's fine here. There's something that we can't quite put our finger on that's actually like in the walls and in the place. That's what I've always personally felt. And it's one of the reasons why as a writer, I make the locations, one of the characters in the books, really, the locations come alive to me and I need to kind of be there and like touch, you know, feel the walls and feel the energy of the place. Um, And I've been to places that are extremely beautiful and full of joy and places that are just full of the most horrific trauma and human rights abuses. And they, it's not just our, you know, our left brain conscious knowing of what happened there that, that brings the energy to the place. There's something else, I think. So for me, having those locations be authentic and correct makes it a better book, but also makes the writing flow for me. It's part of my, it, it, it's kind of fat and not fast tracking because writing's never fast, but it's, it's allowing me to leap into the scene in a much more uh, natural way because I actually don't have to assemble it from scratch. These places do exist and these things did happen. Um, so I'm giving myself more work in terms of research, but in a way I'm given more inspiration because all of these in- incredible lives unfolded in these places and the locations help with that. Interesting that you mentioned about the locations and how that's tied there. And, and, and obviously I total agreement with you in terms of places like Auschwitz, where there's just something beyond the knowing of the history. Even if you knew nothing about the history, you could feel this, this, 
mm-hmm. wakefulness there that otherwise you wouldn't sort of uh, experience in any other sort of location. So we've talked a little bit about memories attached to places. I wanted to talk a little bit about Tara with memories attached to people as well, because I think that what makes uh, historical fiction relatable uh, some, you know, 70, 80 years on is uh, the relationships that people have with one another as characters, um, particularly within the context of the ghost of Paris is Billy's constant revisiting to Jack. And yeah. there's, so there's, there's sad memories and there's, there's memories of there's times of joy with their, with their wedding and with their, um, all that. But in terms of what is it about memories of people that can, and particularly if it's been years past, we haven't even seen that person for a long time that can still power us forward in our current state. That's a complex question, Samuel. I think, you know, we share our lives with people around us Mm. and our lives become woven together. And I think that when we have joyous experiences or traumatic experiences, it, it makes that weaving even tighter. You know, Mm -hmm. we can really untangle that. So they become part of our history, part of the weaving of our life. Um, I think that you can spend, you know, you could be without someone for 10 or 20 years, you know, maybe, maybe even you've not met your parents while you were, you know, old enough to remember them. When you see them, there's some bond, there's some connection there. Maybe you you remember from, you know, the first time you opened your eyes, right? The way that this works is kind of mysterious in a way, but I, I do think our lives become entangled. That's certainly the case for Billy. And I wanted to express that long shadow of war mm. of the events of the war and how traumas during wartime and and in other times it might not exactly be war but have that same essence to them when when there's huge life upheavals or natural disasters when you have conflict and you have massive wars like world war ii people are thrown together and bonded but they are also sometimes torn apart and that trauma is felt for often for generations so i think that there's that common thing you know that story about how people would meet they'd fall in love the same night there's bombs falling you know they don't know if they'll still be alive in the morning and their lives are just like bam just wrapped together the number of people who for example you know got married and, and maybe got pregnant like the night before they were being sent off to duty on the other side of the world. You know, this is a real part of our human history. Um, and I guess I wanted the Ghosts of Paris and the War Widow to express part of that being, um, you know, what, what people have experienced. It's such a common aspect of what happened during the war. Mm. Uh, so I'm not sure entirely if that answers your question, but I do think that we can be trauma bonded we can be bonded through joy. We can be bonded through birth and through death. But our, our lives are never truly isolated. And when we feel and live fully, we risk heartbreak and betrayal, but we make possible greater joy and connection. That's I think that is a very good answer to a good, admittedly <laughs> complex question. I think you handled that really, really well, Tara, in terms of, because I think that it's true. I mean, it, it, we, we can be trauma bonded and, you know, on the, the reverse of that, it can be joy bonded or that, you know, there can be times of that, that also sort of indelibly imprint on us as well. But in terms of, so we've talked about 
locations, having memories attached that shape us, the memories that we have attached with, with other humans as well. Now to get even deeper, I wanted to ask a little bit about what drives us as human beings because there was one line and it's not particularly related to the context I'm using it for, but I thought it was quite, quite broad and versatile. Was Simone talking at one point about saying human needs can be very strong? Yes. I wanted to talk about the need for to find out the truth, which I think is what really drives Billy, which makes her willing to go to these sort of locations that have, you know, it's like embedded with all these sort of traumatic memories, uh, you know, having car chases and, you know, sort of shootouts and fisty cuffs with all sorts of people as well. But what is it about the need for truth? Even if we know Tara, that the truth is most likely going to hurt us within our own sort of personal life, not just within private investigator capacity what is it about the need for truth that that can drive us or certainly drive billy walker i think truth is one of those human needs if we deny it and some of us are kind of forced to suppress that and avoid it i think it it, it's, it can really hurt us mm. you know not to you know that's something we'll regret later if we if we avoid learning the truth um it can be something you procrastinate about though and i think there's a sense of that with billy that a few years has passed. She's done what she can as a war reporter and private investigator, probably got closer than most to finding out the truth, but she never quite got there. She never mm. quite um, revealed that. So, you know, was that her knowing how much it would hurt perhaps on some level, but she just still, she needed to know. It's part of our, I think it's part of our nature to try to understand things. I know mm. it is for me, I'm one of those people who wants to know. I want to I want to know the painful stuff and the good stuff and all the stuff. You know, I I have a a motto that life is too short to live the same day twice. And the reason I have that motto is because I want to learn everything I can mm. uh, through experience, through storytelling, through listening to to people and their experiences. I just think it's a human urge. Billy also has that human urge not only to, to seek out the truth, but also to seek out justice, to try to find justice. And it's in her war reporter days was maybe a little bit more black and white as mm. a guy. She's troubled by ethics sometimes. Like, is it okay for me to be, you know, busting in on someone? I've got to take photographs so I can prove their infidelity so that my client can divorce them. You know, she's living in a time where you actually needed to get proof of adultery, like photographs, you know, in order to exit a marriage, either that or prove abandonment. So she's doing a service to people who are in unhappy life situations, but she's still kind of troubled by it, you know? So mm. she's got that need for justice. And I think a lot of us has that, have that urge as well. Certainly after the war, that would be quite strong still, in many people too, that sense of like right and wrong and who, you know, gosh, all the things that unfolded there and were discovered um, would, would really set a lot of people on that path, I, I think. So a lot of people are motivated by justice. And I think Billy Walker's one of those people. I have a touch of that myself. <laughs> I get that. I certainly get that. <laughs> I'm no Billy Walker, but I think um, I admire that aspect of her. Tara, I wanted to end with a question that I kind of founded my podcast show on, 
Mm. And it's particularly, I'm particularly excited to hear your answer or your experience because someone's written some 14, 15 books now. Was there ever a time in your, your writerly journey, career getting to this point, that you nearly considered giving up on writing for whatever reason? And if you did experience such a, such a period in your life, what uh, enabled you to prevail over it and to continue getting to this point? That's a great question. Um, I have my private investigator credentials and I often joke that if my books bomb, you'll see me listed in the phone book, you know, and if you need anything done, um, I haven't yet had to do that. Um, I am a writer and it's in my bones. It was with me from at least age 10, which was the first manuscript my dad found in the, in the attic, you know, the earliest, I should say, not the first from when I was 10 years old. So I think, that is just part of me and I would feel like part of me was lost if I wasn't writing. Of course I could write privately and not ever publish again. That's crossed my mind, but writing itself is just something I need to do. And it's how I look at, I take the things I've learned and the things I'm excited about and want to learn. And I look at how to make that into a story I can tell. So that's a natural part of me. Um, have I ever really considered quitting? Probably not. It's, so like it's not a easy profession, so to speak. Mm, mm. <laughs> I oh, see I so sometimes, well, often, you know, you're writing and really at the end of the day, you could just, you could have been doing just about anything else and make more money. <laughs> but I have my successes from time to time and that helps. And sometimes, you know, it's a couple of years or three years between books, but I keep doing it. And I'm writing book 15 now. So somehow I continue. That's what we do. <laughs> you just have to keep going. My, my bit of writer advice is don't write it right, just write it. And then make it right later. So when you're having those doubts, just remember, you have to only write. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just get it out. Keep it flowing. And that will make you a writer. That's all we have to do. Spot on. And that's speaking to my soul there because that's what I do. I churn out dog's breakfast, Tara, and then I come back 10, 20 times until it's halfway, halfway uh, decent and respectful. But, you know, it takes a long time. And that is a, a really common and normal and natural way to write. And I think a lot of people see a finished book and think somehow that the person sat down and wrote that word that, for the way they're saying it printed that's not how it works um so whoever you are out there if you want to be a writer to start writing and guess what you're a writer i'm going to leave it on that because that's just the perfect point to finish on but tara <laughs> thank you so much to talk for talking to me on the right way podcast program all the way from canada so it's greatly appreciated thank you it's been a real pleasure and um right on so everyone, there you have it. That was me and Tara Moss uh, discussing her second in the Billy Walker series, her latest novel that's uh, out now, The Ghosts of Paris. So huge thanks to Tara Moss for discussing with me her, her second novel uh, in the Billy Walker series, The Ghosts of Paris, and well as her writing craft in general at the end there. I always love asking that question and proved to be um, such a fascinating response hearing what Tara's uh, own experience was with that sort of um, the right way crux question that we always like to ask. Uh, but yeah, it was just an absolute pleasure to talk to Tara Moss on the show. Very surreal, I might add as well. Huge fan of Tara's writing as well as her documentary work too. Um, I really enjoyed, she's a fantastic interviewer. I really enjoyed her interviewing 
uh, various different sort of Australian international authors back in the day. There was a show on uh, back in the day a few years ago and also Tough Nuts. Um, I really enjoyed that show as well. So Tara's a fantastic host, but yeah, also proved to be a, just the loveliest human as well. So it was an absolute pleasure to talk to Tara on the show about the ghosts of Paris. So can't thank you enough, Tara. Thank you so much. But also while I'm in the thanking mood, thank you so much to you, dear listeners, for listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program, as well as um, what I'd like to hope you're listening to that ever-proliferating back catalogue, as we like to call it, the ever-proliferating back catalogue of various different episodes there, stretching back from as far back as late 2020 and still going strong. So yeah, thank you so much for listening to these episodes. Give a cheeky follow on Spotify if you haven't already or if you listen to this on SoundCloud also. Uh, and yeah, stay tuned. A lot more episodes coming up. Not too much for the year. The year's kind of winding down for me while I focus on my own long-form work. But um, yeah, I'll keep, uh, I'll keep you keep listening and I'll keep uh, getting this immense privilege of speaking to people like Tara Moss on the show, which is just absolutely insane. This is such a roller coaster ride of a podcast and, you know, it's just, just, it's just getting to speak to Tara Moss and you know, people, it's just, it's just crazy. I keep pinching myself, but in the interim, while I'm waiting for that pinch to start hurting to prove that this isn't a dream, I thank you for listening to this episode and I bid you all a good day.